so good. You almost had to play it twice. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Narrative Live. It's 7 p.m. on the East Coast, 4 p.m. on the West Coast, on what has turned out to be a sensational news day. And it all ties into Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and uh, events that have been going on since 2016. The big news tonight involves Thomas Barak, and that's why we've invited Glenn Kirshner, the former federal prosecutor, to join us tonight. Hi, uh, Glenn. How are you doing? Zev, I'm well. How are you? I know you've got a short amount of time, and I'm glad you're here. I'm doing really well. Next to you over there is Matthew Penn, who's a former contractor at, at Wikistrat, one of those Israeli tech startups that has some connection to Khashoggi. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the show with his re revelations. And then also tonight, Drew Sullivan is with us from the OCCRP. He's one of the editors there of that great anti-corruption organization. And he's here to tell us a little bit more about the Pegasus Project, which is, of course, how they discovered that the Khashoggi widow and fiance were were hacked by NSO. How are you doing, Drew? Nice to have you on tonight. Good to be here, Sav. Thanks so much for all of you being here. Let's start with the big sensational news, Glenn, about Thomas Barak. What a bombshell that is. I thought I'd, Mary Garland was not going to deliver anything to us. And then suddenly, here comes Santa and delivering us Thomas Barak, which I think is a pretty big deal in the way I view the 2016 scandal. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, Zev, I hope this is a sign of things to come. I've believed all along that my friends and former colleagues at the Department of Justice have been working diligently to hold wrongdoers accountable. Guys like Rudy Giuliani and obviously now like Tom Barrack, who was a close friend, advisor, associate of the president. He was in charge of the inaugural committee. And now we have learned, courtesy of today's indictment, that he was a foreign agent for the UAE. And I'll tell you, I have the 45-page indictment here, and I have been trying to make my way through it. But frankly, each page is more upsetting than the last page when you make your way through it. Tom Barak and his two, uh, Barak, excuse me, and his two co-defendants were basically mouthpieces for UAE. They mm. were doing the bidding. They were taking direction from Emirati national security officers and military officers. They were being told what to say, push the UAE policies and priorities, and don't let anybody in the United States government know you are acting on our behalf. That is what the FARA Act is designed to prohibit, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And as you say, I don't have much time, but there are seven charges that have been brought against Tom Barrack and its conspiracy to violate the FARA laws, obstructing justice, which is a 20-year offense. That's the statutory maximum. There, I think, are four separate charges for lying to the FBI, trying to cover up his wrongdoing. And when you read through this indictment, it seems like the evidence is so strong against him because it is in largely written communications. He's done. And Zev, if we can pull back the 30,000 feet, I think people need to begin to ask themselves this question. Men like Tom Barrack, Alan Weisselberg, Rudy Giuliani, who is not yet indicted, but a federal judge said there's probable cause to believe there's evidence of crime in Rudy Giuliani's electronic devices. So the smart money is riding on Rudy Giuliani being indicted soon. These men have to realize that the big bargaining chip they have is Donald Trump. And mm. Donald Trump is going to fall. Donald Trump is going to be charged in D.C., as we say, 
he's gonna get got. And the question is, which one of these men will take full advantage of the cooperation benefit that they can receive by flipping on Donald Trump? The time is now for Tom Barack, Rudy Giuliani, Alan Weisselberg, and others. They might as well get the benefit of their bargain and start cooperating against Donald Trump. And cooperating first is really important, right? Get a better deal if you're first in. It's the race to the prosecutor's office. The um, indictment it talks about influencing the foreign policy positions of the campaign of a candidate. So it goes back all the way to 2016. And then subsequently, the foreign policy positions of the United States government in the incoming administration. That to me means that these guys were involved in pushing the Iran policy. Qatar is the other one, of course, that even still that revolves around Iran. And so you've got the, the biggest scandals of the early part of the administration, which revolved around the Middle East. And it seems to me that this indictment is saying that Thomas Barak was basically operating on behalf of the UAE in telling Donald Trump what to do on foreign policy. And when you read through the indictment, the word praise continues to pop up. His Emirati handlers were telling him who to praise, what policies to push, because it was all about the UAE's policy priorities, not the United States. I think we can say that Tom Barrack and Donald Trump, by extension, were not putting USA first, they were right. putting UAE first. Wow. And this is really an upsetting indictment when you read through it. It should upset every American. It certainly felt that way when we were watching this administration in its first years. And now you're saying that the indictment is following through and saying that's exactly what happened. And it's, it stands to reason. I've got a, a list of meetings here that the UAE engaged in with the uh, Trump administration through uh, my investigation and various other investigations, stretching back to a meeting with Don Jr. in, in August the 3rd, 2016, where they were offering Joel Zamel's help, but all the way through the early stages of the administration. The Crown Prince showed up in, in New York for a meeting with Bannon and Flynn and Jared Kushner in December. And then afterwards, they, he held that Seychelles meeting. Remember the big Seychelles meeting, which brings in Eric Prince, and it brings in George Nader again. Remember the Crown Prince, the first time he came, he didn't even tell the State Department he was coming. It was an unannounced trip. That's really not, not, not in tune with, with protocol at all. Yeah, and here's, let me read a quick statement that was released by the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, who's a former colleague of mine. His name is Mark Lesko, and DOJ issued a press release, I think shortly after the indictment was unsealed. And a little piece of it says that Tom Barrack and his co-defendants exploited his friendship with and access to Donald Trump to advance the policy goals of a foreign government without disclosing his allegiance to that foreign government. He goes on to say that the, this conduct alleged in the indictment is a betrayal of the United States. It doesn't get much wow. stronger than that. Wow. And of course, he was involved in the inaugural committee. There's a piece of the Jared empire, which is under pressure here because it was, in fact, all this maneuvering around Qatar that got Jared Kushner's 666 ultimately funded. So it'll be interesting to see where Jared lands on all of this and Ivanka for that matter. Yeah, there's more to, there's definitely more to come. And uh, so that certainly brings in a lot of money that was funneled in and out of that inaugural committee, which people don't know about necessarily about where, where their money landed up. And I think there's, I am glad that the Department of Justice is moving out, is beginning to charge some of Donald Trump's close associates, friends, loyalists, because Tom Barrack and others can certainly provide prosecutors information about Donald Trump's 
wrongdoing. And with that, I got to bounce, but thank okay. you for having me on. Glenn, you're, the, you're the best. Thanks so much for dropping in. I appreciate it. Do you have any thoughts as you're listening to all of that about Thomas Barak and the work you've been doing at the OCCRP, which involves money laundering and certainly involves this man to some extent? Any thoughts on, on that little bit of news tonight? It's been the FARA situation in Washington has been terrible for some time. And we saw it with Paul Manafort. We saw it with a number of these people who were close to the administration. And it really indicates that people don't take these kind of laws as seriously as they should. A lot of these countries that we're talking about in the Pegasus case have representation in Washington, and we know that the representation is going beyond what is officially in the books. And many cases we found where it just was never recorded in Ferris. So it's very difficult to figure out who's getting money for who. In the old days, it was the, it was the NRA and maybe Japan, but nowadays everybody is in Washington buying influence and, and just getting harder and harder to do this, and everybody's spying on each other. So uh, right. With new tools and, and new ways of doing it. So it's making it uh, easier. It really is interesting too that this is all happening on the same day because there is Thomas Barack working for the UAE. The UAE had three separate $50 million contracts with Pegasus in order to use Pegasus for their different intelligence agencies. That's a lot of spying on people's phones that they use. And all of this coinciding with what we're, you know, the same time period that we're talking about Thomas Barak's time period. Now you and various other organizations around the world, all top-notch organizations, have just completed what is known as the Pegasus Project. Why don't you tell everyone what the Pegasus Project was and is, and, uh, and then we'll go through some of the findings, especially as it relates to Khashoggi. Sure. So the Pegasus Project was looking at one particular company called NSO Group, an Israeli company that makes spyware. And we got access to a, a fairly substantial set of data that is believed to be targeting data for the Pegasus software. And it was clustered around 11 different countries. Obviously, countries will do most of the spying internally, for, for theoretically, for terrorists and bad guys. So we figured that these were related to the governments that that were that those people were being spied on. But what it really showed us is, is in fact, most of these governments were more interested in spying on themselves. They were interested in spying on other members of the ruling governments. They were interested in spying on their neighbors, but they were especially interested in spying on journalists and civil society actors, human rights defenders, oligarchs in some cases. So a lot of it was really designed I would say to keep people in positions of power, it seemed to be the threats to these these governments. But there was also a fair amount, especially in the case of UAE and Saudi Arabia, of paying attention to their neighbors and what they were doing. And this spyware enabled them to tap the phones of people in the near area. So this is spyware that the manufacturers NSO, which is an Israeli firm that came out of the uh, 8200 unit, which is a you know, particularly well-known unit for surveillance in Israel. But the technology is privately held, and they'd figured out how to have these, uh, how to hack people's phones, which means uh, different things to different people. But the, the incredible thing that NSO is able to do is that it's able to not only access your phone, it's able to turn on your cameras, it's able to turn on your microphones, access the entire inventory of media you might have on there. So if you have it on your desk while you're having a meeting, everything that you're saying in that meeting is being heard by them. And if they want to, they can turn on the camera and anything else. And the, these days as well, it's also zero exploit, I think is the term that they use. You don't even have to do anything to get hacked. Like something that used to be, you used to have to, have to click on a text message or a mail or something like that. Now it just automatically finds its way onto your phone. So it's, it's what they call zero click exploits. And essentially what they did is they used 
weaknesses in the phones themselves and the various apps and services that were running on the phones. And iMessage was a popular one that they used in the iPhones, but also there's evidence that they used FaceTime and Apple uh, Music and uh, other tools. WhatsApp is another uh, entry point. So they seem to have a, a fairly large number of what we call zero-day exploits mm. that almost uh, it seemed like uh, they, they were never running out of them. And that, that raises serious questions about Apple security and and Android security on these phones that, that they could be so easily accessed for such a long period of time on these very expensive zero-day exploits. And, and the term of, of their use was that they couldn't use it against just for domestic purposes, against journalists or whatever. They had to use it in order to track terrorists or criminals, and, and they weren't allowed to use it against American phone numbers or I think British phone numbers as well. But they, were, they didn't really follow those rules. You know, almost every case that you're looking at here, they seem to be investigating people who are activists, journalists, dissidents, anything but terrorists and, uh, and criminals, although they were, of course, were some of them. But also some world leaders, like Macron was among them, I think. We're looking at some really big names that these guys were eavesdropping which, on, which is, I'm sure, something the, uh, the Saudis wouldn't want out there or the UAE wouldn't want out there. Now, it's all very interesting, particularly around the Khashoggi murder, because we know that the Saudi crown prince ordered that uh, murder. We know that's how it happened. At least the U.S. intelligence community has assessed that as much. And so now we know that there was a series of events that led up to it, which included the hacking of, of his wife's phone and the hacking of, of his fiancée's phone. Tell us a little right. bit about that. So they did access his wife's phone about a year and then six months before the murder. So they clearly, he was of interest at that point. And then they did seem to gain, or try. I shouldn't say that, that they gained access because we don't know actually what was accessed and what was not. We know that they tried to access the phone and uh, they, they then tried to access the phone, the, uh, the fiance after the murder. And not only the fiance, but three close associates of Khashoggi, two of them who were journalists, one was a human rights defender, and then also tried to access the, uh, the phones of two Turkish investigators who were involved in the murder investigation as well. And that was typical what we saw in a lot of these cases. The organizations would, the governments would target a wide range of persons around somebody that they were interested in. Mexico, it was the, the president, the current president, he wasn't at the time, but they targeted 26 people around him. And if you count his political party, they targeted about 50 people around him oh. right before, right during the, the elections time. But that's a pretty good indication that something untoward was going on there. It's a pretty large scale, the, the, the amount of people that they were ultimately hacking. Matthew, you're obviously someone who's worked with the Saudi influencer community. You were one of the recruiters for Wikistrats to reach out to the Saudi community to hire them as consultants for Wikistrats, which was a crowdsourcing consultancy. In other words, they hired people to basically game out different scenarios in the world. And you were one of those people who hired those people. Yes, I, I was brought into a, a project in July of, of 2018 to, we were basically, what I was told was we're, we're forming a Saudi experts community. And the idea was that we use this community for projects involving Saudi Arabia or the Middle East in, in general, spe specifically Saudi Arabia. We, we had a similar project like that with, with Jordan about six months before. That, that was my, the, one of the last major projects I worked on for Wikistrat was, was this was the Saudi experts community. 
Hanan Alatar, who's the wife of Khashoggi. And this is her discovering in November 2017 and then again in April 2018 that her phone was being hacked by NSO Group or someone using the NSO Group software to hack her phone. So let's take a listen to her story. This comes from the Washington Post as they were reporting this week for the Pegasus Project. Jamal, he was always believed we are watched. They are afraid of change, whether the change coming from democracy or from revolution of, of, of any sort. In the case of Jamal Khashoggi, who was the Saudi columnist who wrote for the Washington Post before he was murdered, he was murdered in 2018 when he went into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul he was kidnapped and murdered and dismembered by a Saudi assassination team. And we wanted to know whether Pegasus had been used to spy on him or on people around him. We couldn't get his phone, but we got the phones of the two women closest to him. And digital forensics on their phones showed that Pegasus operators tried to infect the cell phones of both his wife and fiance at the time. We know for certain that they succeeded to penetrate one of those phones. I think Khashoggi had a notion that he was under surveillance because in interviews we were told by his wife that he always had different apps for her to use, that he talked with her about being under surveillance, and so they switched the type of communications that went on between them. He started to remove some special picture from his phone because he used to take a lot of photo for us. He left selfie. And there is one picture very special. We don't want any human to see it. And he, he used to look at it when I'm not with him. He said, I delete it. So he said, Hanan, they can hack uh, my phone and I don't want them to see my wife. So the implication there is that he was aware that he was probably being tracked and hacked. But now we know that he was being tracked and hacked. And that might have led to them knowing exactly where he would be on that day when he finally was, was, was captured and, and killed by the Saudi squad that they sent out. So the implications are that this, it's not just a hacking scandal, it's a hacking scandal that has led to the death of a major and international figure. We saw that in a lot of places. There were a lot of lives that were destroyed by this. In many different countries, you, you would see that, that, especially in places like Azerbaijan, that activists and others would be outed with pictures with, for, you know, ex-boyfriends, intimate pictures of them with people. And in a place like Azerbaijan, where you can get stoned for having an extramarital affair or mm. something like that, then these people were put in very difficult situations. Some of them uh, had compromised a number of anti-government people were under surveillance and then turned pro-government at, at various times. So we assume that maybe there was compromise involved in that. So it's, it really has ruined a lot of people's lives all over the world. It led to the gentleman who was in Hotel Rwanda, Mr. Risabagina. He was lured into, into a trick air flight that he thought was going to Burundi, but ended up going to, to Rwanda and he ended up getting imprisoned. And in part, they knew his thinking because they had access to his phone. And then they hacked uh, his, his daughter afterwards. So consequently, all of these are really real people's lives. And a phone is something you have next to you. You have it in your bed, next to your bed. You wake up in the morning. First thing you do is you put your phone. And when it becomes a Trojan whore that allows a sociopathic intelligence agents 
into your deepest secrets, your friends, your family, your pictures, your intimate life. That's something that can be used um, very aggressively against people. And it very clearly was in many of these places. Absolutely. And she indicates in her interview that she had the phone with them all the time. Yeah. It could be that they were listening through her phone to what he was doing and, and what his plans were. So it's a very tragic thing that obviously is repeating throughout these stories that we're finding out about this uh, really large scale surveillance scandal that is happening around the world. I want to take a look again at the at those companies that come out of Unit 8200, famed uh, unit in the Israeli Defense Force. These are the guys who do a lot of their surveillance. And these are just some of them. There's Black Cube, uh, which is well known for sort of real life, what would you call it, honey trapping or that kind of thing. There's Carbon, which is involved in surveillance around the United States right now, for example, um, on people's phones related to 911 calls. Then there's the NSO group, which was the hacking group. And then there was Fifth Dimension, that's shut down as well. Fifth Dimension was a AI for hire kind of outfit. And then there's Psy Group. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, Psy Group is, was heavy, very heavily involved in the elections in 2016. They really are thought to have helped the Trump administration get into power through various means, partly because they were able to get funding from the UAE and the Saudis, and partly because they had access to this incredible technology, which allowed them to manipulate social media. The CEO of Psy Group is Joel Zamel. And this is the only picture in the world that anyone's ever been able to source of the guy, but this is him. He's also the CEO of a company called Wikistrat. And that is where Matthew worked for a good number of years. And during your time there, you discovered that Jamal Khashoggi was also part of the team there. Uh, yes, I, in the introductory email to the project, the Saudi experts community project, my supervisor, Oren Kessler, who's now the CEO of Wikistrat, told me specifically that Jamal Khashoggi had been recruited by the firm. Like I said, this was in July of, of uh, 2018. And I was specifically told, recruit more people like him for this project. They even, yeah, they gave some examples of, of organizations they wanted me to look at. And one of the things that was really weird about this project for me, I didn't think, I, I thought nothing of it at the time, but looking back on it, obviously I, I should have been a little bit more suspicious. They specifically wanted me to recruit Saudi nationals. Now, obviously, you don't have to be a Saudi national to be an expert in Saudi politics or Saudi society or the Saudi economy, but that's what they wanted. They specifically wanted Saudi nationals. And like I said, at the time, I, I didn't really think much of it because I didn't have a reason to think too much of it. But obviously, looking back on it now, that is, that is very suspicious. Right. And that email, which you just showed up, maybe you want to just describe a little bit more of who this is from the guy who's now the CEO, Oren Kessler? Yes, he was my supervisor. I believe he was the outreach coordinator and, and, and chief, I believe, chief of operations, as I would, as I recall, of Wikistrat. And then in April of 2020, or no, sorry, 2019, he became the CEO when Elod Schaefer stepped down. Right. Uh, Joel Zamel officially left the company back in, I believe, 2017, but Schaefer is basically Joel Zamel, a long-time associate and friend of Joel Zamel. So I question if, even if Joel did officially step down, if uh, if he really didn't have any influence at Wikistrat, I suspect he did when you've got your best friend running right. it. 
But anyway, uh, he had probably had to step down because Mueller was investigating him at the time, right? There was right. this whole side group had to shut down. I think Fifth Dimension also sort of had a quick, a quick death around the time that Mueller was investigating both of these entities. So it could be because of that that he stepped away from Wikistrat. The timing, of course, is very significant. Tell us again what date the original approach was to you to start doing the Saudi outreach. It was, believe it or not, correctly, July uh, twenty, July third, twenty eighteen, is when I got the first first email. And I worked on this project for several months. I reached out to about over a thousand, maybe about eleven hundred uh, Saudis. We did most of our recruitment through LinkedIn, but I also directly reached out to people via email. And when Khashoggi was killed in October, I it's, and I'll, I'll openly admit this: I didn't know who Khashoggi was at the before he was murdered. My most of my personal research isn't in the Middle East. So I didn't know who he was until he was was killed. And when I saw his name in the papers after he'd been murdered, I thought, this that name looks familiar. Did I reach out to him? And, and I did an email search. And that's when I saw the email from Warren Kessler. Literally, when I first read, read over the email back in July, that name literally just went out of my head. I didn't think a thing of it. But then when I saw that again, I was like, oh, my God. What happened? So I emailed Oren shortly after, and I asked him what, what happened. I remember you said that Jamal Khashoggi worked for us. And Oren emailed me back and said, oh, no, we wanted to recruit him, but we never did. So he directly contradicted himself. Right. The first email, he says that he had already recruited him, and then subsequently yeah. he tells you that he doesn't. He hadn't. After the death. That's a very unusual shift in... And and then he sends me another email asking me to recruit several Al Jazeera journalists who were covering the Khashoggi murder. Now, I became very uncomfortable for obvious reasons with this project and stopped all work on it. I never, I just, I was not comfortable going forward with this. I didn't, and I'll, I'll make this very clear. To this day, I have no idea if Wikistrat or Joel Zamel or Oren or anyone at Wikistrat had anything to do with Jamal Khashoggi's death, I don't know. Well, I'll, of course, I'll be the there's no way to say that at this point. But I think their actions during the whole during the whole incident, during the murder, were very suspicious. I, I don't understand. Oren could have just simply said, yes, he worked for us. It was a tragedy, which is actually, and instead of lying about it. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think the I sent you the email from Scott Stedman, right? From Forensic I don't, News. Yeah, but I don't have that with me here, unfortunately, because um, okay. I haven't verified myself. But yeah, I, and I've read the, I've read that email, which is them Wikistrat's publicity people basically confirming that that Khashoggi had worked for them for a period of time, but there was no. They also denied flat out that they had any involvement in anything to do with his death, obviously. Exactly. And it's just, it's very suspicious. First, you say he works for the firm, then you deny it right after his death. Now you've been caught and alive by the, when, when independent journalists come and, call, come and call you on this, you then finally admit it, I believe it was like a year and a half later. I'm not a, a detective, but I find that a little suspicious. If I were a homicide detective, I might want to follow up on that.
You might, and, but it's important also not to jump to any conclusions here because people might do whatever they need to do at a time of crisis. You know, they might have been crisis managing the best way they could. But I think the facts are interesting. Just the facts that you're presenting, and I think those have been verified, is that the that Khashoggi had been part of this group that Wikistrat had used to consult. And they had thousands of these people which they brought in to do war games and scenario planning or whatever it is they do for foreign governments. And Khashoggi makes sense as being one of those people. What strikes me as being particularly interesting is the series of events that lead into and out of, of your experience there. Because in March 2017, there's a meeting between George Nader, Joel Zammel, and Saudi officials. And the topic of the meeting, according to the New York Times, was about targeted assassinations, that they were talking about undertaking some sort of targeted assassinations program. And I also think uh, Prince was involved in that conversation around targeted assassinations. We're talking about Eric Prince. So that happened in, in March 2017. The, the article came out in November of 2018. And just to be clear, that targeted assassination program was related to people in, in Iran, right? It's part of their big anti-Iran strategy. The idea was, from what I understood, from what I read, the idea was to create a destabilization campaign against Iran. Right. That, that was my understanding what the uh, targeted killing program was supposed to be part of an overall campaign to politically and economically destabilize Iran. Right, which we know actually was a thing because it was part of the Trump administration meetings that they had with Prince and with the MBZ and with Asari in that month in January was a lot of their conversation was about how to destabilize the economy of Iran. So all of that is, is verified too. Zamal's history with the UAE and with Saudi Arabia dates back to 2015 when they started doing uh, war game scenario planning around Yemen, even before the Yemen war was had started. And that's a very early on introduction. They apparently stayed in contract with the UAE and did work for the Saudis afterwards as well. And then at that same time, is also the first time that Eric Prince had contact with, with Joel Zamel, according to the Senate intelligence report. That that's the first time in 2015 that Eric Prince met Joel Zamel. So that's, those connections are pretty early on. 2015, when you think about it, prior to even Donald Trump uh, announcing his campaign. And then we know that Psy Group, Joel Zamel's other company, not Wikistrat, but Joel Zamel's other com company, worked with the Trump campaign between March 2016 and all the way through January 2017. In fact, they claim they helped elect Donald Trump in a, in a conversation that we know was reported through The New Yorker. And then there was a $2 million exchange that happened around that. So that all takes you up to the, to the administration taking office in January 17. And then in March 2017, they're still continuing to do work with the Saudis. And now they're focusing primarily on Iran. And they're talking about the uh, targeted assassination program. Directly after that, we now, we now found out that Nan Alatar's phone was hacked in November of 2017. And then again in April 2018. And then in July is where you started an outreach to Saudis to find people like Khashoggi and also learning that Khashoggi had already worked for Wikistrat up until that time. And then October the 2nd, Khashoggi dies. And then four days later, we found out that uh, uh, his widow's um, phone was hacked four days later by NSO, according to the Pegasus Project. So it's quite a timeline. It's a lot to take in. Yeah, it's, if you look at these countries like Saudi Arabia and Azerbaijan and UAE, they are, to them, terrorism and crime is essentially these journalists, these civil society activists, 
these oppositional party people. And it's very clear that Khashoggi was viewed at the time as a, as a potentially serious threat to the Saudi government, that he was going to start an organization to empower the Arab Spring type activities in the region and do other things like that. The, the, this whole sense of democracy and the whole sense of kind of civil society fighting for better governments is viewed in a very negative light. And it's viewed as the crime and the terrorism that they are using these types of software for. And we saw that in the analysis. I mean, it was just it was primarily people who were looking for democratic principles in these countries were the ones who were most heavily targeted. I know this is a question you probably can't answer, but I'm going to ask it anyhow. The fact that both of these organizations, Wikistrat and NSO, are first Israeli firms, but they're also tied to this 8200 unit, which is really the intelligence unit of Israel. Is that something that is a plausible area of inquiry that we as journalists and investigators should be looking at and how these two companies or these various companies inter to interconnect and maybe how separate they are from the Israeli government. It seems to me like nothing would really happen with these companies unless the Israeli government said it was okay. It, it, it's hard to say. We, we ask that question all our, ourselves all the time. And how close is NSO group to the Israeli government? Is it, 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 is it a vehicle for the intelligence agency or is it a separate company that's selling a service to make some money? And we really don't know the answer. And, and of course, Israel is not a particularly transparent place for these types of things. But you, know, you really have to ask the question, why is Israel allowing a company to sell such a powerful technology to states that wanted to blow it out of the out of the region 10 years ago. These are states that are not particularly friendly long-term to Israel, and why are they giving them this powerful tool to do this? There, there is some things I think that are yet to be really understood here. I've got some theories and some of them a little bit scary. In, in the end, I think it's definitely an area that we need to do some serious investigations on and the relationships between these bed, bedfellows in this time between Trump and MBS and Netanyahu and all these people don't make sense in a traditional understanding of a power dynamics in, in the world. And there's something that's gone beyond. There's other elements that are involved, and I think some of them are criminal and some of them are philosophical, but you have this weird mixture of libertarian billionaires and uh, Saudi princes and Farah denying lobbyists and governments that, that are involved in this. And it really needs to be untangled and unsorted for the people. It really does, because it's such a complicated web, as you point out, that it's really hard to see where, where, where the head is of this and where the tail of it is. And it really is important to figure that out. Because if we don't, we're stuck in a pretty unusual dark pattern for a while, because we'll never be able to fix how we got here. So I'm not a great sleeper, as it turns out. I needed to be freezing, cold, and completely dark, and then I cocoon myself in pillows. Even then, sometimes I toss and turn all night. I thought it was stress about politics, maybe the pandemic, who knows. But recently I took a sleep quiz and I realized it was my mattress that was wrong for my style of sleeping. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep references to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody's unique and Helix knows that. So they have a soft, medium and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. And even a Helix Plus mattress for plus size sleepers. I took the Helix Sleep 
quiz and was matched with a Helix Dusk Lux mattress because I sleep on my back and wanted something with medium firmness. It's a huge upgrade over what I used to have. It's soft, but still really supportive. And now I'm falling asleep right away and sleeping well throughout the night. So if you're looking for a mattress, just take the quiz, order the mattress, you're matched to, and it comes right to your door, shipped in a box. It's amazing. It just falls out of the box. It really is impressive. And it's shipped for free. Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired magazine. It's pretty impressive. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it. Can you imagine that? So 100 nights, good night sleeps. And if you don't love it, you can send it right back and you will love it, of course. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and then two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash narrative. That's N-A-R-A-T-I-V. That's helixsleep.com slash narrative, N-A-R-A-T-I-V. And you'll get $200 off for two free pillows. Tell them I sent you and you won't regret it. I promise that. It's a great mattress. There's a, a really interesting book by one of the people who I think targeted by NSO. I think Bradley Hope is amongst the list of people that was targeted, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah. he wrote this book called Blood and Oil about Mohammed bin Salman's ruthless quest for global power. So obviously not a flattering take on MBS there. And in it, he, he does a, a pretty good explanation of how the hacking went back and forth between Qatar and the and the UAE or the Saudis. He says the hacking had real world consequences. The leaks exposed Elliot Brody, one of Trump's top Republican fundraisers, as exploiting the relationship with Trump to bill foreign governments tens of millions of dollars for the construction of open source research centers for combating terrorism, like the one Trump visited in Riyadh, that picture with that weird orb. So even here, even in this book, which is not a new book necessarily, but it's a, it, we can see the elements of the indictment um, against Thomas Barack because Brody and Thomas Barack had a relationship with each other right. and, uh, and with the Saudis and the UAE. So already there, we can see that in this book here, and we can see where this scandal might might take us because if Brody is involved in some sort of corruption and, and Barack is involved in some sort of corruption, perhaps we might see that Trump himself was involved in some sort of corruption around Qatar and that blockade. I'll show you one little piece of this book, the three $50 million contract that the UAE had from NSO, which is a phenomenal amount of phones. I don't know what each account or each hack would cost a, a client, but $50 million strikes me as buying you a lot of access to a lot of phones. And then it says here, the high cost came down to NSO's use of zero-day exploits. The only problem with providing such a powerful tool to other governments, including authoritarian monarchies, is their extremely limited oversight. NSO makes buyers sign an agreement that they won't use Pegasus to target political opposition groups or activists. It also bans them from using the software against US and UK numbers, but they don't police its use in real time. If there's an incident, then NSO has the ability to go back into the system, ascertain whether Pegasus was used against a particular target and shut down a client's access. The problem is that incidents of misuse are hard to identify since the software by its nature is extremely hard to detect. Now, this is the amazing thing about what you've done here with this Pegasus project is you've been able to detect it. You've been able to find all these vulnerabilities and all these people's hacks on their phone. How, do you know how they did it? How did the, the Forbidden Stories team or and the Amnesty team do that? So I'm not completely familiar with the exact technical, but there was messages that were sent usually 
iMessage and most of the hacks that we found. It's more difficult on the Android phones to discover this because the Android phones don't have the logging uh, capability that, that, that the iPhones do. They say that's actually a feature because it is a secure, it helps with their security. I, I don't know, but we were able to go in or, or Amnesty International was able to go in and identify particular messages that came in and then connect it back out to known servers of the NSO group. So that's pretty compelling. They have to send the information somewhere and it went to known servers. And so that's pretty good indication that in fact, this, yeah, that this was the NSO group behind it. So now- Not, not the NSO group itself, but the clients of yeah. the NSO group. So now they're in a situation where they're gonna have all these reports because they've seen them all, they deny all of them, but truthfully, they're gonna find out uh, they're probably going to find out that it was them. This is a real existential crisis for NSO, which wouldn't be a surprise to anyone, but this is the rooster coming. And uh, recently, Amazon has shut down some of their infrastructure, which will put them in a very serious situation. There's reputational harm on this. Amnesty International is calling for a moratorium on all of this type of software. It's obviously not in the interest of most nation states that other nation states have this software. So there may be some, so, some agreement on that. It, it's really a difficult situation. The truth of the matter is, in a lot of ways, is the, the horse is already out of the barn. The UAE is developing its own system. Saudi Arabia, I'm sure, is doing the same. We didn't talk about Russia and China, but they have their own systems that are as sophisticated or more. And there's a number of other Israeli and other spyware companies that are out there. It, this is going to become, we're basically in the middle of a hot war uh, on information right now. So it's, it's an information war between countries. We've seen the amount of hacking that's going on by China and the United States. And there's really doesn't seem to be any way to close the door on this. And I would expect we're going to go through a long period of time until serious investment is made by the companies or the nation states to close some of these holes down. And then there was a hack of Jeff Bezos's phone, which included some intimate pictures there as well, I think. Yeah, and I think this data was, there was no indication that Americans were, or, or Brits were, were compromised in this particular set of data that we have. And of course, the relationship between Israel and the United States, it would be a real serious problem for them. Obviously, Israel has been caught in the past spying on the United States quite aggressively. And consequently, there's probably some political reasons why they want to avoid that. But that's not stopping Russia and China and many of the other organizations who China is doing it with organized crime gangs. It's, it's not just the nation state. In Eastern Europe, where, where I live most of the year, it's called farming, where you go out to America and steal money from banks and people and other things like that. This is a whole industry that's going on now. And it, it, most of the Western systems, just the information that you can mine from public sources and from commercial sources that are out there, you can do a lot of information just from what people post in Facebook. And of course, that was the basis be behind Cambridge Analytica and that, that type of open source intelligence. With artificial intelligence having a bigger role on this, we're, we're really in a situation where it's going to be almost impossible to keep uh, your information from getting in the hands of, you know, people who are motivated to get it. Most you can do is raise the cost um, so that it's more expensive for them to do it. But if you've got a nation state going after you, they're going to pretty much most major nation states are going to have their own sophisticated, they got enough money where they can go out and buy the zero-day exploits that are out there on the market, on the dark web and other places. They can hire the people to do that and make their own 
And as long as Apple and Android and these other people don't make a significant investment, which they won't if it's not costing them any money, once a bunch of people start suing them for poor security, they might change their mind a little bit. But right now, it doesn't look like it's going to change in the near future. But this is the first, this is one thing your enemies doing, and it's one thing your adversaries doing, and like Russia and China, you expect them to. In this case, you've got Israel, supposedly a staunch ally of America. You've got Saudi Arabia, supposedly a staunch ally of America, and the UAE, supposedly a strong staunch ally of America, not necessarily operating in the interests of America as they target journalists like Khashoggi or leaders like Macron or Gandhi or whoever else they were, they were targeting around the world. And these are, this is not a, this is a rupture in the way the West has worked up until now. Well, and I think that's that really speaks to nation states don't matter anymore to the people who are running it. Donald Trump is not about America. I'm not sure MBS is particularly about Saudi Arabia. And so we, we have interests that are going beyond nation state boundaries for the first time. And I think that's really dangerous because we don't know what those are built around and we don't know what those interests those are. And, and that's really problematic. So nation states are getting manipulated rather than having a leader protecting the interests in, in some of them. And I think that's something that's rather new. And I think America is one of the most problematic areas of that because you see the, it, the Republican Party is almost a criminal enterprise at this point. Especially when you look at what you've, you've got Thomas Barack getting arrested today. I mean, that's stunning for influencing the Republican Party and but really the president into basically following the UAE's orders. The old Republican Party would have been horrified at the notion yeah. that the UAE was giving their president orders and that he was following them. And that's just, I, it's kind of, sh it's just shocking. Um, you, you can almost, uh, it's almost like the RICO statute can be applied at some point. It really I mean, should be, it should be. And, <laughs> you know, and when you look down at the insurrection and all the foreign involvement in the insurrection and, and all the way back to the election campaign of 2016, but even 2020, there's so much manipulation and involvement there of foreign of foreign governments that is not who MAGA believes um, is, they're, they're supporting. They certainly don't think that they're out there supporting UAE's interests. So the, they believe that Donald Trump's agenda is very different than the UAE's would be. You've been a little quiet, Matt. Is there anything else you want to say? We've got a little bit extra time after we've got a break here with you. But is there anything else you want to say we've been talking about? I totally agree with what, with what Drew is saying. And... Honestly, I would make one change. I wouldn't call it an information war. I'd call it a total information war. We're talking about information war because of the amount of our lives is online, on social media, or how much our finances are online, or our, just our identity in, in general is online. When companies, private companies or governments can so easily manipulate that or steal that data for their own malicious purposes, just as total war developed in the 19th century, early 20th century, this is total information war. Every aspect of your life can be destroyed at the click of a button. And, and you're right, there's so much publicly available data out there that you don't really need. Pegasus is extremely powerful software in and of itself, but there's so much publicly available data that you don't need to be a, a, a hacker or a a cybersecurity expert to access. Yeah, I would say we're in a very dangerous position. And until, first off, there needs to be some kind of international agreement, as I know as impossible as that may seem right now, and in many ways it is, but until, until nations realize just how dangerous this is to, to be left unchecked, 
and some sort of international consensus is, is formed, we're in a situation, I, I, I would almost uh, put it as analogous to the nuclear arms race of the mid 20th century. We have this dangerous new technology. We don't really appreciate the destruction it could cause. Hopefully it won't take some sort of massive terrorist attack or, or some large casualty event. But it's it, it, we're going to have to get to a point where we finally understand the real dangers here and act and build a new uh, consensus on what is what should be allowable activity for any nation to engage in online and what isn't in the same way that obviously we develop our nuclear non-proliferation agreements. Which, you know, and also, by the way, that's also going to have to be a big part of this is expanding your non-proliferation regimen to include or better include uh, cyber weapons. Right. For sure, that uh, seems to be the frontier that we're fighting uh, right now. And yet we have seen the damage. I mean, when you look about what has happened to America since 2016, I mean, the, the damage is everywhere. The whole the balance of power around the world has shifted just because of this kind of information warfare. Certainly the world is, has already learned the lesson. Maybe we haven't quite registered how seriously it's affecting us. And when you have a society like the American society, which is so open and accepting and letting everybody in, keeping all our information channels open, maybe that's not the best way to, to approach the future. Maybe we do need to think of ways where there's just some sort of limitations on how free we are with the information flow we have. In the United States, those are very daunting, daunting issues. Drew, I know you've only had an hour for us, so I want to thank you so much for being with us tonight. I'm going to keep talking to Matt a little bit later after this break, but thank you very much for joining us and congratulations on an incredible project. Can we expect more from the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project on uh, Project Pegasus in the next few, few days? Absolutely. We're going we're gonna to do some deep dives into the, some of the countries where we're interested in and we're a very granular organization. We like to get into the details and uh, we're going to be doing some more of that. And I hope that the uh, the overall project continues to exploit the information that we have and that if that is the case, um, then there could be, you know, more revelations. We're still doing Panama paper stories, yeah, you know, well, <laughs> from, from back then. So I'm on your you website know. a lot researching those. Yeah, it's incredible <laughs> how powerful that was. Yeah. The OCCRP is OCCRP.org uh, and people can find you on Twitter at Drew. D-R-E-W-O-C-C-R-P. Thanks for having me, Seth. It's great to have you on. Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative.